Welcome to the Future of Science podcast. Today, we're joined by James Evans. James is a professor of sociology, the director of Knowledge Lab, and the faculty director of computational social science at the University of Chicago. In this conversation, we learned about how James studies innovation using what are essentially rich digital twins of knowledge ecosystems like science or Wikipedia. According to James, diversity is a prime driver of innovation. We covered which dimensions of diversity really matter and what the optimal amount of diversity is. We also touched on how AI could in the future help diversify the scientific idea space and whether it can eventually replace human researchers. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you do, don't forget to subscribe and rate the podcast. James, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for the firework of a seminar that you gave. So this was absolutely spectacular. And let me start by, by asking you something about how you do this research about uh, innovation. So you, you said that if you can't produce it, you didn't explain it. So how do you as a scientist produce innovation in vitro in order to understand it? Well, I mean, sometimes unsuccessfully, but I think the uh, the idea here is that uh, you know we're trying to build a kind of a digital double of the system in question, mm -hmm. and that digital double includes you know what people are attending to. So let's say if it's the scientific system, you know what people are attending to, uh, the landscape of material opportunities, and um, and so you know we're trying to basically kind of account for the things that people are accounting for in context. And then that allows us to kind of, you know, turn the dial and alter mm -hmm. things that uh, exist in the world to ways in which they don't exist in, in some ways and in, so, in, in some cases to, to ways in which they couldn't exist. So, for example, I'm really interested in producing uh, both what I'll call kind of cognitive and cultural aliens, you know. Mm -hmm. So like, a, a, you know, a cultural alien might be, Like in my seminar, I talked um, a little bit about, you know, how it is that we could kind of, you know, produce these insights that no human could produce because no human was educated with the combination of insights that would yield, you know, the possibility that this copper compound has, you know, this desirable energy relevant property, you know, photovoltaic capacity, a thermoelectric capacity, or, you know, could prevent COVID or, um, you know, or as a therapeutic against asthma or whatever. You know, and then that allows us to to kind of basically explore those possibilities, and then we can actually experiment with them, or we can do kind of quasi or pseudo experiments where we use first principles or data driven models of those properties, which are widely used and respected in the field, to see the relative likely that those likelihood that those those hypotheses would work out. So I, I think the idea is, you know, if you build a system that can predict, it's a sufficient system for for predicting most of the phenomena in question, um, then that allows you to simulate with opportunities, with other ways of being. So I would say that one that I just described is kind of like a set of cultural aliens in the sense that it's not like humans couldn't have discovered those. You just need to train them to discover them. You need to train them to a new culture of science. Um, a cognitive alien would be like you know, putting together things that humans couldn't put together without a prosthetic, you know, like, you know, we don't have, you know, therapeutic cocktails with like 200 drugs in them. Why? Because like, we can't think about mm -hmm. the combinatorial explosion that that, that means yeah. we can't think about searching through that, that massive space. So that's what I mean. I mean that, you know, we're trying to basically build a system that we can kind of explain and predict most of the things inside that system. This allows us to to uh, to play with changing the rules of innovation. That's absolutely fascinating. And uh, is is that also a possibility to actually create innovation, or is it literally just for for understanding how the system parameters are working together? What type no, of no, no. I think I think the, yeah, I think these are engines. You know, I think these are engines. And, and in fact, I you know I work with um, material science labs, pharmacological labs. Um, You know, for explicitly the purpose of kind of optimizing search through the space of these possibilities for their, um, you know, you know, for their labs. I've also worked with genomic centers. Yeah, you know, all, in all these cases, these are situations where we're really trying to, they have to have enough of a budget. They have to have enough experiments for this to make sense. Um, but if you have enough experiments, in the same way that if you have enough cash in the bank, you're going to invest it differently 
than if you had 10 bucks in the bank. Right. You know, if you have $10 exactly. in the bank, you're not going to take big risks because it's an yep. existential investment. You could lose everything. But if you have a huge investment, then you want to pull, push out the tail of that risk portfolio. And, um, and this is something ironically that, um, that huge investors in science, like, uh, the National Institutes of Health, Nova Nordisk Foundation, the biggest foundation in the world, these, they're not doing this, not doing it yet. Uh, they like mm-hmm. the idea of it that they're not structured around um, this way of thinking about the future. Exactly. Interesting. Um, this this actually, uh, I wanted to ask this later on, but it right, leads right up to my question. Um, so what role does AI and models like this play in the scientific process? Like next year and then maybe down the line, like what? how do you see... If you're saying that we can actually build systems where we can find insights or hypotheses that maybe humans can find, like will science eventually just be done by these systems and engines, as you call them? Or like, what is that, that going to look like? And then do we still need human scientists? It's a great question. Yeah, I, I think we're, we're, I mean, obviously we're on the cusp of thinking about this future. And so, but I will say, I think AI feels a lot like you know, some other moments in the history of science, right? So, you know, so I think about, um, you know, the turn of from the 17th to the, the 1800s, and you've got this, you know, emergence of new chemical languages, for example, uh, which were a way of kind of like defining elements. And once you define those elements, all of a sudden it, it, it became an engine of innovation and discovery because you could combine mm-hmm. all these newly equally defined elements, which were... Um, defined by Lavoisier in terms of a new chemical language. And, um, and it, he really thought of it as, as a combinatorial research engine. Uh, and it was. Um, I would say, you know, but there's a short-term and a long-term game with these kinds of things, which is to say that dramatically increases the amount of combination exploration of that set, that frame of combination. But um, if it dominates, if that's the only thing that people ever do, in the same way that if you have, you know, if you define a space of combinations that an AI is going to search through really efficiently, when it gets to the end or when there's diminishing margin returns to the exploration of that space, then if that approach to science has basically killed off all its competitors, there's nothing to breed with it to generate the next gener- you know, the next generation. So one of the mm-hmm. things that we saw uh, that, that we see, have seen in historical science, and I'm sure will be the case going forward, is that abduction really characterizes uh, disruptive advance. And it has, you know, over the last two centuries, and, and I think it will even more in the future, because when you know more, then disruption is more informative, mm-hmm. right? If you don't know very much, <laughs> you know, then there's a lot of things that are not so much surprising as just, you know, foreign to your system. But when you think you know a lot, that's when surprise becomes enormously powerful. So I think actually, you know, what we're going to need to do is take a playbook from the history of human science to build into uh, this world of AI scientists. We're going to need to build uh, different kinds of AIs that are, you know, that are disrupting each other um, and that are basically taking advantage of, um, abductive opportunities, surprising opportunities that, that reshape the space. And I think this is also true with AI governance. I mean, people, you know, have AI safety concerns as they should, but I think one of the things that is rarely part of the discussion is the fact that, you know, how do we deal with powerful, unpredictable actors since the time of the Magna Carta is we like build another set of institutions. We build an independent parliament, you know, what do we do with mm-hmm. an independent parliament that goes rogue? We build an independent court system, you know, that kind of checks the parliament. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I think we need to basically, you know, be really thinking about building a landscape and ecology of AIs that are checking, auditing, you know, disciplining, you know, regulating each other in this, uh, in this state space where, Things like, like in the U.S., for example, the Securities and Exchange Commission or, you know, the Department of Justice, like they need their AIs to be competing with and regulating other AIs that are floating mm-hmm. around in, you know, the financial markets and elsewhere. But I think this is this is a critical thing for for science. I think it's it's going to lead to a short term boom and a long term bust unless we build in the potential to take advantage of surprise. Hey there. I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. 
If you do, please take a sec to leave a review or subscribe to this podcast to help us reach more people. Thanks. So you mentioned abduction quite a few times here now, and you've covered this in the seminar, but maybe for the podcast audience, abduction, what is that? And what makes it happen? Like, how can we make it happen? How can we ensure that the scientific system kind of incentivizes for that if it's so important for innovation? So, yeah, so abduction is not, uh, I'm not using it to, to suggest alien abduction where, you know, someone kind of, you know, puts the bag over your head and, uh, and takes you for their purposes to their places. It was an invention of Charles Sanders Peirce, who was this great 19th century uh, philosopher, linguist, polymath, um, who was really interested in the way in which knowledge was changing. He was He, he anxiously thought about um, the world as a probabilistic space of possibilities and really felt like deduction and induction were insufficient as mm -hmm. philosophical cartoons to describe what characterized reasoning in the wild, in science, um, mm -hmm. and in the world. And so um, he, the idea of abduction is really the collision of deduction and induction. You set up a frame, you set up an experiment, you set up an observatory, and then the unexpected happens. Right. Yep. So yep. your experiment doesn't work as expected. You're, you know, so, so it's like you're conditioned by theory and then, and then your, you know, your expectations are violated. And then this motivates, uh, the development of new theory. Now he thought that this would take place again. He's in, you know, he's like in the 1890s and this is the same time as William James and the emergence of psychology and parapsychology and the idea that, you know, like the subconscious, uh, he thought that this happened inside the person for the most part, like, mm -hmm. you know, calcul imagining the benzene ring as a snake biting its tail. You know, he imagined that this was taking place inside the person through dreams, through, you're not thinking about it. And in fact, this is kind of like, um, really, uh, he has a series of tales, which are just like Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is so compelling as a character because he, is impossible. He's the person who knows all the details on the inside that makes the mystery completely, uh, you know, puzzling. And he knows completely unrelated details on the outside that makes the surprising unsurprising. Right. And so it's yeah. like, he's two people. He's not one person. Uh, and, and you, you have in this discussion, one discussion of abduction, him describing a Sherlock Holmes style moment. And many people believe that he did influence Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, where, you know, somebody steals his watch and effects on a ship and he like kind of like chases them down and he like finds them through some alleyway in a, a boarding house and like intuits that <laughs> he's supposed to go and find the watch underneath this hat box or something. It's like this bizarre thing, but he, and he doesn't even really consciously know it. He kind of unconsciously knows it. Um, anyway, I think that occasionally happens. I think people do have eureka moments, but mm -hmm. I think um, the thing that he missed um, that I think we're trying to capture and I was trying to characterize in the talk is that um, abduction typically happens not within people, but across people. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. yeah. That it's effectively right. a conversation of insiders, kind of the priests mm -hmm. of the system. They know the texts. Mm -hmm. They know the puzzles. Mm -hmm. They know when something is surprising and when it should be surprising because they know how it should look. Um, and outsiders, kind of prophets, you know, who kind of bring in patterns that are alien, you know, patterns, methods, approaches, ways of seeing things, different epistemic standards right. for what knowledge is or could be. Uh, and they bring these things. Now, they're not intrinsically prophets. They're just prophets to this priest's problem, you know, uh, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's really just about them being outsiders to this system. And so this is where um, I see, uh, you know, 20th century science emerging as an engine of you know, economic growth, uh, of science and technological growth, um, is that basically increasingly sciences are solving their problem with tools produced by completely unrelated outsider sciences. Like that's what we see time and time again in this research. Right. Um, and if anything, it's increasing. And so in some sense, the value of science is not, um, just the intentional act But it's it's also it's 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 the sciences. It's the fact that they're independent of one another, that they have their own kind of disciplining boundaries. They've got education that can serve themselves 
And even though that conservatism um, ends up, you know, making it difficult for good ideas to diffuse, it also has a benefit, which is it it, it retains difference. It, it produces a reservoir mm, of of difference from which science is systematically draw to solve their problems. So I think um, that's why it's 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 critical to think about this because it, because increasingly. Um, I would say even in the, the age of the internet where everything's connected and connectable, um, where the kind of fast movements towards open science, which I think are wonderful in many ways. Um, but, but the tension with these kind of like open science calls is often it's like, well, instead of investing in 10 data sets to 10 private labs, we'll just invest in one data set that everyone can use. And the mm. problem is there, Okay, so then all of a sudden we drive out the independence, which is available to solve someone's problem, and we drive out the appearance of of uh, confusion that happens when when basically systems or experiments um, disagree. And we find systematically in our research that um, replication, for example, uh, or the the likelihood that a scientific and technological finding will be replicable dramatically increases just by having a second independent group right. investigate the same phenomena. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. don't share mm-hmm. authors that, that have often not read the same literature, yeah. so they come from slightly different fields, and uh, but they're not using the same tools. Yeah, yeah Interesting. Exactly. So like a little bit of siloing is good, I guess? Critical, yeah. Interesting, okay. That's counterintuitive. Yeah. If it's so one of the things that we find is like if you've got two conversations going, two fields, and they merge, like the whole conversations mm-hmm. merge, they become one field, mm-hmm. then the 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 diameter of of ideas in the space mm-hmm. drops by half. So it collapses. Wow. So really? you, you preserve wow. you pres- you know, so it's so and and so what does that mean? That means, you know, if there's like ten people who all have a measure for unemployment. They're all a different measure for unemployment. They hold a conference. They pick a winner. Now, mm. if there was a winner, if there was like, if there were, you know, if you know, if there was one measure that was better than them all, then that would be a fine thing to do. But but they pick a winner, independent of whether one is the winner. You know, they they they, they pick a winner because that's how much basically cognitive breadth the community has. And so, right. so you basically just, you know, you have this kind of cultural collapsing. So I think this is um, the benefits of silos. Again, not completely independent silos because the whole benefit, their whole benefit to the rest of the field is that yeah. they're accessible. It's just right. that they haven't, you haven't like taken down the boundary so that everything is yeah. one soup. If you did, you would have a great five years of science. They would be <laughs> unprecedented in discovery. Um, and then you would realize that there's nothing left. You know, all the, you know, all the labs that studied these other, you know, organisms and whatever, they're all gone. Everyone has jumped on the bandwagon. It's like when everyone started studying COVID, um, you know, mm-hmm. like imagine that they never, you know, all those people never went back to the things that they went to before. Um, then, you know, COVID, you know, comes and goes, you know, less viral strain, you know, kind of exceeds the others. And then, you know, like you know, what's, what's, what's left. So I think this is the um, concern and the importance of really basically managing the ecology of this right. broader mm-hmm. landscape of ideas. So all of this highlights, of course, the, the importance of diversity for, for innovation, right? So from what you described, I'm, I'm getting the sense that we can have a little, there may be scenarios where we have too much diversity or where we have too little. So is there, is there something like an, an optimal degree of, uh, of diversity? Yeah, I, I think there is relative to specific problems. I mean, the tricky thing is one can't project all the interesting problems that will occur in the future. But absolutely, I mean, infinite diversity means the system has no memory. Right, <laughs> you know, exactly. Like there's no, there's no memory also- of... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and probably also people have have no means of actually communicating with each other in a in a reasonable fashion, right? That would be actually productive. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So you can't even convey the past, right? right. Because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and then, uh, but zero diversity means that um, you know that even if you identify you know, cracks in the edifice, if you if you 
you realize the inadequacy of your theories uh, to solve your puzzles and your technologies to solve your problems, then um, yeah, there's no there's no other resources to breed with your own, you know, to combine with your own to kind of produce yeah. um, novel insights. And so, so it's really absolutely it's about managing this balance between, uh, you know, you know, between memory, you know, you memory, remembering enough, respecting that memory enough to kind of try to incorporate new ideas into these prior works and engaging in creative destruction, right? The Schumpeterian, uh, well, really Marxist idea, really, that basically, you know, the new is going to make the old valueless. And so I think there is a tension, right? Because at some point, there's some theories which are fundamentally better. Now, there's some products mm-hmm. which are fundamentally better. And one of the things that we see with a decreasing dynamism in the, in the U.S. economy uh, and in many other economies, so there, there are about 50% of the companies that existed on the stock exchange in the 1980s, for example, when I grew up. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a massive agglomeration. And one of the things that uh, Ufuk Axigit, who's a colleague of mine here at the University of Chicago, uh, an economist who's studied this in detail, we see along with that an increase in the likelihood, for example, that new companies, rather than going to IPO, are acquired. And when they're acquired, the inventors associated with technologies in those companies become about 10% as productive as they were before. Whoa. Right? Wow. And okay. their, but their income dramatically increases right? yeah. more than 100%. So right. they're basically they're being else, silenced. Huh? Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. We're just, we're just, yeah. we're just killing, you know, so that's, that's, you know, so that's the extreme and where we have infinite memory, you know, where the technologies mm. of the past are really driving and silencing the technologies of the future. And so we really need a competition policy in science and technology as well as an industry. Uh, and, um, and it's, it's critical to engage in, in managing that, I would say even more actively than, um, the, much more actively than we have in the past. Right. You mentioned a couple of dimensions of uh, diversity that are actually relevant for for innovation. So maybe maybe we can uh, we can tackle that. So what what are actually the, the most relevant dimensions of uh, of uh, diversity for innovation that you guys have identified? Well, okay. So I I think that um, one of the things that we've been looking at most recently is just trying to capture how it is that different kinds of perspectives matter. And and one of the mm-hmm. things that's highlighted time and time again is that you know there's a different diversity that's relevant to each class of questions and i'll give you an example in just one minute mm-hmm. but there's a study that we did a couple of years ago that highlights one piece of this example so we looked at at uh, people you know hundreds of thousands of teams editing wikipedia articles and we found um systematically that um when people had greater political diversity that when they edited um political Wikipedia pages, it dramatically mm-hmm. increased independent perceptions of the quality of those pages. And, um, and it had less of an impact on social issues pages, which also had a substantial content, uh, political content. And it also had a positive impact on, on um, scientific pages. Uh, but when we just looked at non-social scientific pages, just uh, natural scientific pages, it had no impact, right? So it's, it's, so it's like the relevant diversity. So one of the things that we've done recently, um, this is with a wonderful graduate student, Lacun Kao, in the lab. We've tried to basically, I would say, you know, kind of objectively measure subjectivity in a variety of creative spaces, right? So, so we have, you know, we're looking at, for example, the um, space of culture, ambient culture, in which people construct screenplays for movies. And we've looked at the mm-hmm. kind of the government documents landscape and then, you know, in which people construct bills, you know, for U.S. Congress. Or we've looked at the ambient, you know, business discourse, you know, from, you know, The Economist, Wall Street Journal, Investors Business Daily, all the news magazines that have been talking about uh, these issues for, for, for decades. And then we place emerging companies within that context. We do the same for science that we build a scientific space and we project people's patents. And so, and each, and, and, and we try to basically identify a person and their perspective as a function of the prior things that they've produced. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if I've produced this play or this movie, uh, you know, screenplay or this, um, you know, patent in the past, then that's my position. Now, if I have two screenplays, then I can draw a trajectory. Right. Right. Uh, if I have three plays, I can construct a surface. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. if I, four, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I can get more and more precise with more experience that decreases the number of people that have had those experiences, et cetera. So, um, but what we find systematically is when we, we, you know, or well, two things. One is that these capture people's subjective perspectives in powerful ways. Um, that doesn't answer your question, but it's a lead up to how we, I hope that we, we can, right? So, so what does that mean? That means, for example, people, if you know, they're at this point inside this high dimensional space, um, as a function of their, their view, literally like the angle with which they see, let's say, two ideas coming together, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if they're like on the same line, you know, and they, you know, they, they literally, it's very unlikely for them to combine those ideas in the future. They are invisible to them, even if they're mm-hmm. equidistant to them versus if they have like a 90 degree angle or if they have a 180 degree angle, the ideas are like coming at them. Like then they, it is inevitable that they will combine those ideas. Clash. Yes. Yeah. You know, so we can basically capture these, these subjective perspectives that really characterize the likelihood that people will see and recognize different Ideas they, they they will occur to them right in a cultural or scientific space, and this is we see this in um, you know screenplays and you know writing bills and constructing Wikipedia articles and writing scientific papers and writing patents you know and uh, you know writing software you know so so we can capture these perspectives and then here's where um, you know uh, to answer like what dimensions matter okay I can't capture. The, the dimensions, because I think that's I think that's the wrong question. I think what we find is that when you see a product, a new product, a new screenplay, um, a new patented technology, you know, um, a new Wikipedia page that people are constructing, etc., a new company, uh, company description on say Crunchbase, you know, that that has founders and investors, we what we see systematically is if you look at the people who have created that thing. Um, the success of that artifact or object or company uh, or movie um, ultimately uh, ends up being highly predicted as a function of of three things that trace this optimal diversity. One is that they have maximally different angles with respect to each other I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and the ultimate product. Like they're coming at it from different angles. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. So diversity does matter. Two, that they used to be really far apart. They're pre- if we have if we if we actually look at the trajectory, they used to be really far apart, and now they're really close together. Mm-hmm. So they're basically coming towards this whatever thing they're writing in this high dimensional, like three hundred dimensional space, bringing plumes of independent experience, right? That were completely unavailable and alien to the other actors in question. So, um, and then the, and this this is highly predictive of outsized success. Um, of the objects in question. So rather than it being like, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's gender diversity or it's like right, diversity right, right. of this kind yeah, yeah, of experience. Yeah. It's like, it's, you know, like one of the reasons we're using these three interdimensional spaces is because you can't project, um, a person, you know, you can't project, you know, right. President Donald Trump, right. you know, into a, into a yeah, 10 yeah. dimensional, five dimensional space. You know, he's a complex object, you know, full of riddles and all those, every riddle, every, right. every, you know, uh, requires another dimension. Like that's, right. you know, everything that's inconsistent requires another dimension in which that can exist with the other thing. So, but everything complex, everything we care about, every screenplay, every movie, every novel that's interesting is a very high dimensional object. And all yeah. of those dimensions matter. <laughs> for right. for constructing ones that will be disruptively important. Right. Yeah, so there is a lot of diverse dimensions of diversity. Hey? Um, so <laughs> m- one question then, though, like if you need, <laughs> it sounds so dumb. It's like you're you're like yeah, so you're just saying nothing. You're just saying, <laughs> diversity squared. You know, like uh... <laughs> kind 
random, right? It's okay. the diversity part. <laughs> but it makes sense. I get it. So my question, though, is like, if you're saying it's so important that different people are coming at the same idea from different directions, but they're you know, coming from far, coming closer. How close do they have to get to each other before they can actually discover this new idea? Like, have you identified, like, what's the distance at which, you know, diverse people can start talking to each other and then create these, these new insights? Yeah. We've, I mean, we've, tr it's, it's hard to kind of give you a precise measurement. It's quite close. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's quite close. Sometimes, um, it's because they have actually reached across and actually collaborated in the, you know, um, like they mm -hmm. have, a, have diverse experiences and then they reach across and are collabor have collaborated in the recent past themselves. I mean, it doesn't last forever because if you collaborate for long enough, then you drive out the diversity that mm -hmm. was yep. uh, present. It's like potential energy. You know, you roll the rock down the mountain and it's sitting in the valley. Right. You know, it's like it, you have to, it's, it's, you've yep. used the energy and <laughs> you've used yep. up the diversity. So I think, yep. Um, yep. but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, if you, absolutely, you can't speak to one another. Um, if mm -hmm. you're, you're not close enough, but, um, one of the things we've, uh, this is a, a very recent project. We were looking at, um, okay. So how do you, how do you build teams that can kind of cross diverse spaces and pull together ideas? Mm -hmm. So we thought, well, um, we thought, well, maybe the way in which you can, uh, avoid, you know, the challenge, you can cover the spaces. You just kind of tessellate people over the space. So, That's the kind of mathematical idea where you're just tiling them so they're equidistant to one another. So each person has someone they can talk to, you know, mm -hmm. stretching from this part of the space to this part of the space, right? And um, and we were totally wrong. It turns out that creates extremely boring papers, software, artifacts, um, because you're kind of locked into a social con contract right? With the people that are near you. Like they know what you yeah. do, you know what they do. This is how you solve the problem. And that produces extremely conventional, high productive, like you can produce a lot of mm -hmm. those, of those useless widgets, but you can, you know, um, <laughs> it reminds me when I was in, I was recruited to be a kind of a statistician for um, a couple of biomedical papers. And I was sent over a rectangle of data that I was supposed to, you know, analyze with a fixed Thing. And I said, hey, well, how do we produce this data? It seems like this, maybe there's another dimension. This, this doesn't, you know, maybe. And I was like, no, <laughs> we don't, we don't want to talk with you. <laughs> we, don't want, we just want a statistic. We want a P value. We will do the rest. We just, we want, that's what we want. You right. know? There was, yeah. there was nothing, uh, there's no surprise coming out of that, that article. Uh, And so I think, so what we find is basically that holes, like diameter matters. Like if you stretch across diverse spaces, that matters. But actually having a hole also matters. And we, we assess this through this idea of persistent homology. So you can basically identify the, the uh, you know, the holes inside of any particular, um, you know, point space. And so we find these holes. And when the holes are bigger, so it's like you, you want, you want people to be close enough that they can speak to one another. They can share enough vocabulary that they can like actually produce. And it turns out that, that, that uh, these high value teams are less productive by about 40%, uh, but the disruptive and innovative rate is much higher. So you, you actually want gaps inside the space. Um, right. And so what exactly is the right size of the gap? It actually depends for, for space, but you don't want them to be cheek by jowl uh, inside the space because having a gap activates a search process. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, that, okay. okay. It activates a search process. Now, of course, sometimes that search fails and, mm -hmm. um, and that's why they're less productive, right? Uh, on average, yeah. because they have more things that just haven't worked out and shouldn't have worked out, but, but that they wouldn't, they certainly wouldn't have tried if they were basically in a series of conventional relationships, which are defined by, by norms and expectations about what each other brought to the table. Right. So, so if you were to like construct a team of scientists to increase the chance that they create this incredibly innovative idea, then Like who would you put together? Would you put together like people coming? Yes, coming from different um, different areas of the problem space towards the same 
um, like nucleus, whatever, but you want to lack off experience on some level as well. Like you, there needs to be something missing, like a gap, right? Like what? There needs to be a gap. There needs to be a gap. Yeah, that's right. Well, the gap is just, it's just the, you know, I mean, that, that neither of these folks have genuine and persistent experience with the other's problems. Okay. Or, right, which, okay. which means mm-hmm. that, that they mm-hmm. actually have some independent information to offer um, in, in these contexts. But, but I think, mm-hmm. you know, one, this one study that we're, we're trying to finalize right now where we were just looking at, okay, where in the sciences, and I, I'd love to look in other places too, it's just the sciences have so much, you know, people, you know, scientists leave droppings basically. So we have informational traces of them that are enormously rich. And so what we find yeah. is that, is that, um, that there's a status order, surprise, surprise, you know, so it's more likely mm-hmm. for electrical engineering to look to physics than physics looks at electrical engineering. It's more likely right. that CS looks at electrical engineering than vice versa. You know, so you have this kind of, this attention uh, flow across this space. And we asked ourselves, okay, well, so that should create a set of, of cultural blinders. I mean, if that's true, if it's just conventional that I'm not going to look downstream yeah. at this field or that mm-hmm. field. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we basically looked at, okay, well, what happens when, when people cite the opposite way? You know, when an idea mm-hmm. comes from sociology mm-hmm. to economics, you know, when it comes from mm-hmm. electrical engineering to physics. And it turns out that on average, uh, the things that cite those things end up being more impactful and having a higher likelihood of outsized impact. Mm-hmm. It's more likely that when people cite those things from within the higher status field, they're less likely to kind of cite, to like reach down to like the lower field and cite the things that they cited. And it's more likely that the person who's doing the citing is at the same institution as the person that they're citing. Like the, it's by accident, you know, like they literally met because their kids are on the soccer field together, the football field, they're, they're at the Whole Foods together, they're serving on a crappy committee together. I mean, it's, it's more <laughs> likely that this happens uh, by, by accident, which means that there are many other things on the table, you know, yes. that, are, that are being yeah. missed. So, so, it's, so in this sense, it's like, you know, it's not just about diversity. One of the reasons why there's a gap, there's a gap that's asymmetrical is what I'm saying. Like, it's not even just the space of things here. We can basically say, Hey, everyone from this field is gazing at the ideas of that field. It's unlikely they're going to be surprised by new things from that field. Mm -hmm. But if nobody in this field is looking at that field, (laughs) uh, for historical status based or even just institutional boundaries, you know, especially in Europe, there are a number of, it's very, it's much less. I mean, now they're building centers of excellence, but that's a compensation for, an effort to really distribute excellence field by field across universities within many countries. And, that, and that's um, created a, a, a decreasing likelihood that someone from field X is going to find an excellent person and idea from field Y at any particular place. Um, so, so yeah, I, th- I think we can characterize uh, any particular team um, as a bet in terms of, you know, the combination of background experiences, this even like directional biases that we can kind of like account for inside mm-hmm. the space. Um, now, most of these findings are observational. And so right now we're engaging in some experiments to identify the relative likelihood that if you engage in this policy. So one um, study we're just doing in the Wikipedia space, we're trying to assemble teams from scratch that do this to, to identify optimal constructions. In another case, um, uh, I'm working with uh, some scholars in, um, in Europe to kind of just explore the possibility of, okay, you know, with great registry data, you can actually get really rich exposures of people like every library book they've checked out for the last 50 years. You know, you can get exposures <laughs> of people to information. You can use the statistical centers to recruit those people to, to, uh, to teams to solve creative and other problems. So I think, wow. I think we need to do some experiments before we unleash the entire you know, national apparatus uh, at this form of innovating. But I think absolutely we can, we can start conferences all the time because we know someone from grad school we ha- or we bumped into someone at our institution. I think using some intelligence to, to construct convenings, you know, 
that are uh, improbable in some way, but much more probable at producing innovation and disruption uh, in another way. I mean, yes, it will, these will definitely be more confusing uh, conferences. <laughs> There's no question. Yeah. And, and this will absolutely be more failures uh, at these conferences, but there should be. There should be. I mean, the alternative is like it's a reunion. You know, it's like you're just yeah. high-fiving yeah. each other that you still have right. kept the faith, you know. Right. You still believe in all the things that you all believed in before. I mean, exactly. it's just – it's. Uh, <laughs> You, you definitely need the, all, all the failures to have a few successes, right? And so you, I, need I, the, you need to up your failure rate. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Not be afraid of mm -hmm. failure, like actually embrace failure. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I wanted to go back. So one of the things that I found really interesting is that you said that uh, so that very often these important innovations that they seem to go against the existing status order, right? So when, when you have like a, a low status field getting published in a higher status field, that this paper has a higher probability of, of getting cited. So what's the story here? So why are the patterns going against the existing status orders rather than confirming them or going with them? I think it's I think it's the same surprise story that that we told before, right? So I think that I think that if a field has like chosen for whatever historical reason, maybe very good historical reasons, not mm -hmm. to consider the work right. of another field, yeah. um, then um, then they you know then like it's 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 kind of like the finches in the Galapagos Islands, right? That Darwin observed, right? So, you know, they're separated by a moat. You know, in his case it was like the oceans separating islands in the island chain. Now we're separated I mean, it's a one-way separation, you know, the, the upper status mm -hmm. is not looking yeah. at the lower status. Yeah. But you're yeah. immune to those ideas which are evolving and basically selecting according to a different logic. And mm -hmm. then then there then you have informational uh, you know, value uh, from that other community that wasn't available before. Because before when you were together, you had all the information they had. But now they've separated. Um, they've kind of responded to different selective pressures and generated patterns and approaches that now are available, informationally relevant to potentially solve problems that, that you can't solve. Because you've been, you know, uh, subjected to a different set of of selective pressures and your environment with your epistemic standards, et cetera. So I think, I think that's what's, it's, it's just a reservoir of difference. You know, it's that moat that separates you from, so that's why it's going against the orders that are surprisingly good, you know, because yeah. nothing has been, and it, and it also suggests that there are many more things than the things that people happen to bump into, uh, as a function of, of connecting with people at their institutions. Right. But there are so many more things on the table. Exactly. So talking about institutions, so um, if you think of universities as, uh, as institutions that are supposed to breed new insights and innovation and uh, new revelations, uh, is, it, is it optimal that we're actually uh, organizing universities primarily around like relatively strict uh, disciplinary boundaries? Or is there better ways of doing that? Well, I think, I think that's a great question. I think on the one hand, um, you know, discipline boundaries are, are critical to conserving diversity across the whole space. So I think, I think it's, it's important that there's some memory in the system and, and that's where it, it resides is inside these disciplinary mm -hmm. settings. Mm -hmm. I think we also need to explore the fruits of crossbreeding these differences. And, um, and I think, it, you know, the question is, how do you, How do you balance those two activities, right? Mm -hmm. How do you balance mm -hmm. like separate development um, from kind of efforts to kind of crossbreed across these spaces? And I think um, there's little question that um, the system could certainly sustain substantially more crossbreeding. <laughs> um, so I, I don't believe, I think if we got rid of all of our disciplines, I think it's great that some institutions get rid of all their disciplines, You know, it's great that mm -hmm. Arizona State University, the Santa Fe Institute, where I'm a faculty member, you know, have no disciplinary boundaries or have, have you know, novel disciplinary boundaries. And I think that we could stand with a number of other institutions that followed suit. Um, at the same time, uh, at the limit, you, you, there's no memory. You know, if you get right. rid of all the disciplinary boundaries, yeah. those are literally the repositories of 
of, of memory and great ideas from the past. I mean, as ideas get further into the past, they also represent um, a diversity, you know, an increasing diversity relative to the present, right? So, so memory also facilitates the ability of drawing upon great ideas from the past. So I, I, I'm not arguing against memory. I just think that we need fragmented, you know, diverse memories. Um, and I think this is, you know, back to your question, Carla, earlier about AI. I think we really need to mm-hmm. cultivate diverse AIs, a landscape of diverse AIs, both for their own self-regulation, but also for their own disruption and surprise, unless we want to be in this situation. So there, there were all these scientists and social scientists um, between really the 17th and the, well, I mean, through the 20th century, certainly, you know, with groups like the Vienna Circle, that were all about, you know, driving out all ambiguity and then kind of creating this Hilbert-like space in which basically all of the the proofs of math could basically prove themselves through automated hmm. means or all the chemical possibilities and material uh, materials could be discovered through automated means. Like everyone was driving down ambiguity and driving up this idea of, of a ratiocinator, you know, like a, a machine that would facilitate. And I think that's, um, I, I think those are not um, unfounded, you know, beautiful fantasies. I mean, Leibniz, you know, articulates this probably more poetically than anybody else. And it's just, it, these are beautiful fantasies, but they miss, they miss the abductive idea that, that mm-hmm. you know, there is going to be, like that, that question, Philip, that you posed earlier um, about, well, can you know, innovation happen through these means? And the answer is, again, you know, yes in the short run and no in the long run. I mean, you know, innovation is – it's managing chaos. It's like literally surfing that boundary between order and chaos in the system. And so the idea of having institutions that facilitate innovation is paradoxical. And so yeah, how do you yeah, build, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because yeah, the moment, the moment yeah. you institutionalize yeah. the rules yeah. of innovation to create yeah. the innovation machine, that ceases to be the source of innovation of the system by yeah. definition. But it's not just a yeah. language game. I mean, it's, it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Huh. Okay. Well, that's a fascinating note, I guess, to, <laughs> to, uh, to end on. We're all I, I can relate to what, what you said on so many different levels, James. Like, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the chaos of innovation. Yeah, no, I do feel this entire idea of like preserving some, some siloing to preserve the element of surprise, yeah. but then also crossing boundaries. Like, I, f- I do feel that applies on so many different levels. Yeah. Like, there's definitely yeah. something I'll keep thinking about. Um, but we're almost out of time and we don't want to miss out on our lightning round. So we yes. brought a few very short <laughs> questions for you and we're hoping you'll be able to give us very short answers. So, um, yeah, Philip, kick us off. Okay. <laughs> Good luck so. with that. I'll try. I'll try. I'll try. Exactly. I'll try. I'll try. The big I'll challenge. Try. Most <laughs> difficult part of the podcast. It, it is. It is. <laughs> okay. So first one, what's the most innovative idea that you've come across in 2023? Um, you know, I, I think there, there are aspects of um, the assembly theory paper that came out uh, by Sarah Walker and a number of colleagues uh, in Nature that, um, you know, kind of formalized some things that I've been thinking about. But because they're thinking about what I've thought about as kind of ideas in the context of actual chemical species, they're able to measure that in a, in a very particular way that I've, I found really um, insightful and useful and, and arguable, you know, you can actually grapple with. So I thought that was a beautiful idea. Nice. Wonderful. I was, I was thinking of, um, I saw an ad for a toaster that has a display where you can see how brown and golden will your toast get and you can select it. But that, that one's more, that's, that one's better. That's, you're, you're that's, that's, no, no. I mean, that's, that, that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing if you ate toast. Right. Yeah. We, we need more innovation and like kitchen appliances. That's right. All right. Next question. What's your spirit animal? What's my spirit animal? I love how this is the toughest question on everyone. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, like E. coli. You know, I'm like a gut bacteria. I just... I, I, 
a symbiote with the universe. You know, I really want to be in there. <laughs> you know. Okay. Okay, cool. Be taken. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. Highly, highly robust to all different sorts of catastrophes happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm sticking around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> okay, next one. If your research could have a theme song, what would it be? Um, Passaglia by Bach, I think. Yeah. Wow. All right. <laughs> nice. Okay, so we, we, we I mean, definitely need to... That's the fantasy. I'm yeah. not sure. It doesn't yeah. deserve that theme song. Okay? That's <laughs> a completely, like, you know, aspirational, but yes. We, we should totally pick out that song and mix it with the podcast. Like, <laughs> hell yeah! I'm not sure we can get the rights to it, but we can try. <laughs> I mean, all right, uh, uh, <laughs> you're on Sebastian. Sure, Who, who's going to sue us? <laughs> um, all right, which scientist has had the most influence in you? Um, pro yeah, I mentioned Leibniz, and I think his mm -hmm. his imagination and fantasy have have probably influenced me more than anybody else. Wow, lovely! That's amazing. Okay, so that actually motivates me to uh, to look back at some of his writings. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> his monadology, and he. I mean, I think he was. There were many things that were misguided, but they were so big. He was so. Yeah. It was you know it, it, there was so many hopes and fantasies that infuses. His work, his calculus, all these things that I, I yeah, the, 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 that's, that's, you know, he was uh, for the journey. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. And last one. In a parallel universe where you're not a professor, what else would you be? Let's see. I love art making. So uh, I, I would probably, there'd probably be a little more chaos in my life, even then <laughs> this hair suggests. <laughs> I, I know it doesn't look like I should have any more chaos, but I, I would, yeah, I think, I think uh, <laughs> a different I love that. What's your media? I love visual, but I love sound too. Probably a, I'd be like a okay. soundscape uh, person. Wonderful. Soundscapes. Okay, very Yes. <laughs> you could construct your own theme song. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Right. So, this is right. wonderful. I, th I think there there have also been like some some results showing that uh, you know some of the best scientists are actually also very creative artists. They often have like a, a music or that they uh, that they paint or whatever. So wonderful. This fits perfectly. James, thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking to us for spending time with us. This was absolutely fascinating. We learned so much. I feel like we could have kept going forever but we let you go <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks for so your much. time james this was great thank you thanks for listening to the future of science podcast if you like this episode please remember to review and subscribe to this podcast you can learn more about the dsi foundation at dsifoundation.org see you next time